Let's pray. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What a tremendous theology. We often forget that you are good because we look at our lives and we think, well, this is definitely not good. Father, help us to see life through your goodness. Help us to understand what it means to have a good and loving God. Father, this is your word and you have inspired it. You have breathed it out. It has the capacity to change lives for good, for eternity. And it has the capacity to sanctify those who are yours. We pray that you would do that. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. We ask it for your glory's sake. Amen. James chapter 1. And our attention will be on verse 17 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 12 through verse 18, which is one section separated by a transition verse in verse 16. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, which is the trial, he will receive the crown of life, which is a promise from the Lord, which God has promised to those who love him. No one must say when he is in a trial, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, in response to that reality, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, uh, sorry, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God will bless the reading of his word. We return this morning to look at this well-known verse, verse 17. And the problem with well-known verses is that it is well-known. And so we think of it in terms of what we know about it because it's so well known uh, to us. Let me just give you a big picture scope of what we have seen thus far. So verse 17 falls into the scope of an entire section that responds to a claim that is made in verse 13 about God. God tempts us to evil or tempts us to do evil. So that is the claim. It's a quotation made by James. This is what people were saying in this church or synagogue for that matter. And James responds in four ways to give us a picture about God, about man and the nature of God. 
in verse 13, he gave us the essence of God, the divine essence of God. God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one towards evil. That is the divine essence of God. There is no evil in God. Then we looked at the innate nature of man, verse 14 and 15. Man by nature. He gives us an anthropology, a, a homotheology, if you will. A study of sin, a, a, a description or theology of the nature of man with regards to sin. We will always sin without God. Without the, the brakes being put on us by means of His grace, we will always tend towards sin and therefore end up in death. We are always moving away from God. And so he gives us that picture in the analogy of a pregnant woman. We as human beings are like pregnant women, or at least from the moment of conception, if the pregnancy does not uh, fail, it will give birth to a child. So James says, this is all of us. With regards to temptation, when temptation is present, you will end up in death because you will always Follow your sinful desires. Thirdly, James gives us a picture of the immutable character of God. This is who God is in, con in contrast to the claim that God is tempting us to evil, which implies that God is by himself evil. James gives us a theology of the immutabil immutability of God. And then lastly, there is the divine work of God, which is verse 18. So our section falls in this scope, the immutable character of God. In our text this morning, we will see that James gives us two features about God's immutability. They relate to one another. Number one, God is a good, giving Father. And I should have added in there an unchanging good and giving father. Secondly, God is a good, unchanging father. It sounds the same, right? Well, like I said, it's connected. And you will see that. You can actually see it right in the text. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. There you go. That is the father from which the gifts come gives good gifts. The father uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's the second part. The Father who gives give good gifts is also the unchanging Father. These theological, two theological truths highlight the essence, the nature, and the character of God's immutability. So in response to the claim that God tempts us to evil, James highlights the truth about God's unchangeable character. I said it last time I preached. The only way to combat heresy is with what? Truth. That is what James does. He doesn't go down the route of delving into the heresy, and he could, but he says, listen, this is wrong. You can't blame God for your sin and your temptation. This is the truth. God is not tempted, and secondly, he is by nature unchanging. That is what we will look at this morning. Now, I do have two parts to the sermon. I brought both. I'm not going to finish it. Um, so I will come back next week and finish the second part. If I do happen to um, transgress or wander into it, it's just because it is resident in my mind. 
So let's give attention to the good giving nature of God. Look at verse 17 again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Pause there. It's one clause. What does it mean that God gives good gifts? Now, what we have to understand is that James is writing to a Jewish audience. We know that from the very Jewishness of the, um, the, the text. He mentions synagogues. He mentions our father. And the reason why he writes in a certain way is because of his audience. They have a resident knowledge, uh, an existing theology that James knows and he can draw from. He doesn't have to explain a lot of things. And um, there are those of, of us that don't understand why we preach the way that we do. Why do I go so slow? Well, we are not Jews. And some things that James says, which is um, written to a Jewish ear, will spark an immediate response, and they will know exactly what he means to us. We are not only, I hate double negatives, but I'm going to use it now. We are not only not Jews, don't ever use double negatives, but we also have a translation in our hands. And thirdly, we are so far removed from the context it is hard to always know exactly the nuances that is given in certain words. And so we take our time to try to explain and give you the cultural, the contextual, the grammatical, and the historical context to build the picture that the author builds for his audience. Now, he doesn't have to explain a lot of things. And so I'm going to take some time to explain some things that James leaves out because he doesn't have to explain it. Now, in this case, like I said to you, James is combating a heresy, which is in verse 13. The heresy is that God places the believer in a trial, and when he does that, he's actually tempting us with sin to do evil. So James responds and says, ah, not so quick. That's not what God is doing. Firstly, you don't understand your own nature. That's why you have verse 14 and 15. You are by nature sinful. You were always sin. And secondly, you don't fully understand God. God is unchangeably good. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. So let me ask you this question then. If the gift is good and perfect, what does it say about the giver? The giver there is also there for what? Good and perfect. Perfect. In fact, that is the connection that James is making. He's making the connection between God, who is good. He's the Father, who is good. He gives this theological solution to the, uh, as an answer to the accusation that God tempts people to evil. In fact, you can actually see the contrast. The claim is that God tempts us towards evil, and James responds and says, No, God gives what? Good gifts. This is not an uncommon theology in the Jewish writings. The mere mention of God's goodness or God, God's gifts should evoke in the Jewish thought God's covenant theology. Listen to Psalm 34 verse 8 which was just sung this morning. O taste and see that Yahweh is what? Good. Psalm 69 verse 16, answer me, O Yahweh, for your 
covenant love or steadfast love is good. Psalm 85 verse 12. Yes, Yahweh will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Again, the land relates to the promise of God, the covenant that is made with his people. So whenever goodness is mentioned, it should automatically evoke the thought of God's covenant loyalty to his people. Psalm 100. For Yahweh is good, his steadfast love. We again, we have that covenant loyal love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. James does not remove the goodness of God from his nature and his steadfast, unchanging love and care for his people. How do I know that? Look in the middle of the 17. Coming down from the what? Father. That is another theological term. We may not think of it. We think of it as pedagogy, just God's um, father nature towards mankind. No. This relates to God's covenant loyalty as a father to his children. I will never abandon you. Even though he took them through hardship, affliction, and persecution, he never abandons his children. So James never separates, like the Old Testament theology, God's goodness from his covenant loyalty. What we have here is a simplified restatement of Old Testament theology that James has taken and said, do you know this God? And puts it into a simplistic form. In one sentence, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from your father. So James draws them in by these key words, these hook words, so that they realize that this is the same God. Maybe a new dispensation, but the same God. This goodness is not only seen in the nature of God, but even more so, in how he deals with his people. Over and over, throughout the Old Testament, you will see demonstrations of the goodness of God. It is always general in nature. God shows his goodness to his people in a variety of ways. It is this resident theology that James draws on. Like I said, he does not need to explain it because they have a common uh, background, a common history, a common understanding of certain terms, hook terms that they can use because they speak the same thing. Just like um, K flat colors, right? Um, well, there's a new thing coming, uh, uh, a dictionary, right? Um, that is uniquely K flats that has, um, what's it? What's it? Afrikaps, yes. And it's got words like, um, Barakat in it. Only those who's ever received Barakat would know exactly what Barakat is. You don't have to explain it. You just ask, am I getting some Barakat? And you know. This is what happens when New Testament authors are writing to the same kind of audience. Jewish especially. I shouldn't say New Testament authors. I should say uh, biblical authors because the Old Testament writers do it as well. They use terms 
that is familiar to certain people or to that group, and they don't have to ever explain it. That is what James does with his theology here. Just the mere fact that he mentions good, perfect father implies that he draws the Old Testament theology about God into what he's, going about, what he's saying about God. So the first reality that I want you to notice is that God is a good, giving father. Take notice how he explains this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down. Suggests that there is a continual, repeated reality indicates this is how God always reacts and acts towards his kids. He's always good towards them. He's always giving towards them. In response to that accusation, God tempts us to do evil. James says, don't be deceived. God does not give you evil, but he's constantly giving you good. This means, in the context of what James is talking about here, go up to verse 12. Blessed. Why is he blessed? Ever wonder about that? Because of the way that God deals with him. Blessed, the condition, the state that the man is in, is the man who remains steadfast, steadfast under what? Trial. Because the trial is a test and not a temptation. That's what he says. For when he has stood the what? Test. The test is the trial. Go to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tested or tried, I am tempted by God to do evil. What's the context? Trials and temptation. James is saying, in the midst of your affliction, here's what you need to know. God is what? Good. Now, let me explain the weight of this. They are receiving the trial. They are in the midst of affliction. Some of them have died in chapter 8, and some of them will die in chapter 12 of, of Acts. Some of them are fleeing for their lives because the Jews are being persecuted in Jerusalem. This is the context. And James says to them, you know what? God is good despite the fact that you are fleeing for your lives and you are about to die for your faith. Here's the reality. God is nonetheless what? Good. So that means then it doesn't matter what the trial is or the impact of the trial on your life. It doesn't change who God is. That's the point that he's making. Trials do not change the character and the nature of God. In fact, it is an expression of who he is. It is a gift from God. That is a hugely different way that we think of trials we think of trials as a punishment, and sometimes it is discipline. If trials are part of God's good giving, then the believer's attitude must be changed towards the trial and God. Because we love to do a Numbers 10 and 11 when it comes to trials. Anybody read Numbers 10 and 11 yet? No, okay. It's about grumbling. That's what we do when trials come. Ah, oh, Lord, why me? Not this again. 
Why is this happening to me? Woe is me. Every time something happens to me, you sound exactly like the Jews. Why didn't you leave us in in Egypt? It would have been better for us to die there. Who are you, Moses? Who's made you God over us? The problem is not the gift of trials, but what we expect from God in trials. We expect God to lift the trial, to take us out of the trial, because we don't think trials are good. That's why we want out. And yet James says, count it all joy. Doesn't matter what the trial is. When you are in a variety, a varied colored trial, doesn't matter what it is, count it all joy. Why? Because it comes from God and it is therefore good. Now, let me deal with the difficulty of this text. What does it mean, every good and every perfect gift? There's two ways to understand it. Number one, it could mean that it refers to the same thing. Every good gift and every perfect gift could mean that it's the same thing. That's how some take it. Or it could mean that every good gift is different to every perfect gift. And so it deals with two different things coming down from the Father. That's how others take it. So what do we do with this? I'm going to punctuate that question for now and work my way up to it. Take a look at the text and keep those two things in mind. Is it two or is it one? How do we understand this? He says that these gifts, perfect gift and good gift, I should say good gift and perfect gift is from above. This is a very rare adjective. It's used in very unique situations and it's good for us to take note of it. It is always directional. Uh, Directional meaning that it's always indicating a movement downwards. There's always a descending nature implied in it. It is used in Mark 15, 35 and Matthew 27, 51 to refer to the curtain being rent or torn from above to the bottom. From above of the curtain to the bottom of the curtain. Some of you can picture that. Um, I mean, there's tremendous theology in that. John constantly and consistently uses this in the sense of being born from above. John chapter 3. Peter will deal with us when he gets to it again. But in our translations it says, and Jesus said to him, unless you are born from above, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What do our translations say? Unless you are what? Born again. Now that born again is actually wrong because that is how Nicodemus understands it. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I mean. Unless you are born from above means that the spirit has the freedom to move away once and he chooses those who are born from above. So consistently John uses this word to refer to the life-changing processes that God gives from above. So salvation comes from where? Above. It also speaks of Christ who comes from above in John 3, 31. 
He who comes from above, referring to Him, the Christ. There's always this directional motion coming down. In fact, you see it in the next word, coming down, or, or rather, from above, coming down. That word is not even necessary because from above actually explains that. There is a directional movement coming from God, the Father who is above, towards you. In fact, James uses it in chapter 3, verse 15, I believe. Let's just see if I can find it. Yeah. This is not wisdom that comes down from above. You can already see in there, right? There's a picture of downward movement from God to his children. So he, like John, consistently uses it to show origin, where it comes from. And in this case, it is the Father from above. Not only as a sense of source, but it flows downward. So that means that if he gives good gifts and if the the gift is perfect, then it's got to be in him good and perfect because he's the one from which it flows. That is why he makes the connection to wisdom because God is the source of what? Wisdom, that is why we ask God in chapter 1 verse 5 for wisdom because God in himself is pure wisdom. So this is the point that James is making. The gift is good because of where it comes from. We use this, uh, we, sorry, we use language in the same way. Uh, from whence it comes. You take it from whence it comes. My wife's favorite statement in life is from whence it comes. It comes from a good father. God is the summum bonum. That is Latin for the highest expression of goodness. He is the explanation of what goodness is. The ultimate expression and possession of eternal good is God. Jesus says, there is no one good but God. Why does he say that? Because essentially, by his nature, he cannot be anything other than good. Why does James emphasize this good nature of God? Because of the accusation of evil. So James says, listen, if you understand who God is, you can never make the claim that God tempts us to do evil. Why? Because by his nature, he can only give good gifts. The word good means intrinsically good, inherently good in quality. This is what God gives to his people. That which is qualitatively good and profitable. God only gives us what is good for us. Again, consider the context. In the midst of trials. And James says, what God has given is good. Which means your trials are good. Your father is a good father and he infinitely gives good gifts because his goodness is infinite. The goodness of God is the truth that James desires his readers to understand in relation to their trials. This is the foundation of Israel's hope. Now, I'm still getting to that, so hold on, hold on. 
The goodness of God, even though that is a reality and Jews knew it, sometimes because of how life turns out and the nature of the circumstance, we know it is true, but we don't always recognize it in life. Think of Psalm 73. If you've ever read Psalm 73, it should immediately click with you. If you haven't, read it. He starts and ends with the same clause. Surely God is good. That is the reality. But then he goes on to speak about how he sees the wicked flourish and the, the, the poor man and the, and the righteous are being suppressed and persecuted and murdered. And he wonders, well, how is God good if all of this is taking place? Until he comes to, I think it's verse 13 or 15, and he says, Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I came to God. Until I met with God. Then he could see the reality of God's goodness in the midst of the affliction. The point that he makes is that the answer is with understanding God. When I came to go to God, my understanding opened, my, my understanding expanded, then I could see the goodness of God truly, even though it included the hardships of life. The problem is that we think in terms of temporal goodness. Temporal goodness in our mind must mean the eradication of sickness, ailments, hardship, affliction, poverty, and death. In fact, isn't that what some Christian circles say? Well, if you're suffering, then you do not trust in the Lord? As if suffering is wicked? Or, or if you are ill, then you do not have enough faith in God? As if um, suffering and illness is contrary to God's will for our lives? See, we don't see the whole picture. We cannot zoom out far enough to see what God says. We only see the now. Think of Joseph. Every gift is good, while in the moment it may include hardship. So James reminds them that whatever God gives is good, regardless of how it looks. Now let me return to those question, that question. What is the are these gifts every good gift and every perfect gift there are two ways to understand this number one it could mean that james is saying that these two things are synonymous and they mean that god by nature just acts good or he gives good and therefore the gift which is given is perfect could be that or it could mean that God gives good gifts and he gives perfect gifts. And both come down from him. Could be that. Now how is it possible? Well, you've got guys on both sides, good guys on both sides. How do we make a decision? So I'm going to try to make an argument for the latter. But there's two things in mind here. So stay with me. Grammatically, for those of you grammarians, this is a compound subject. And just allow me to explain. I know that there are those of you who have now blanked out. I said grammar and, you know, all you're going to hear is wah, wah, wah. Just hang on. So a compound subject implies that there are two things that's connected by a um, conjunction or sometimes by a comma. 
Like for instance, Jack and Jill went up a hill. So Jack and Jill, two subjects, went is the verb, up the hill is the object, or um, uh, yeah, up the hill is the, the, the um, object. So what James is saying is that good gifts and perfect gifts, two subjects, come down from above. So, hmm, two subjects. Including that, two subjects, he adds two adjectives. Hmm, now that complicates it a little bit. Because he says good gift and not good and perfect gift. He says good gift and then perfect gift. He, he separates them by two adjectives. And we know that based on the structure, it basically means that he's attributing a quality to the gift itself. Yeah, I hope you're still with me. In addition to that, the word gift, good gift, is different from the word perfect gift. But in English it says what? Gift. So now I'm going to explain to you that when the authors use the word gift in certain sentences, it is different from the other word which is translated gift. So the first word, good gift, is the word Doses and allow me to um, use some Greek words which I don't often use, and there's a reason. Our translations just give us one translation, gift. But the first word is doses, and the second word is doreima. So doses literally means the act of giving. That is the sense of the word. Whenever that word is used, it refers to the act of giving or participating in giving. One way that we can see this is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul says that no church shared with me in giving, that is the word doses, in the act of giving or receiving but you alone. And it is consistently used in that way. That act of giving, participating in giving. The other word, which is dorema, is used specifically in a very specific context. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Don't fall asleep yet. We will get to bringing all this technical data together. Here's the problem with translations. They choose the best word that reflects um, the best understanding of the word. But the problem with Greek is that it's so variegated, it's, it's, it's so nuanced, and English is so limited, so they can only do so much with translation. Verse 15 of chapter 5. But the, see that word there, free gift? is not gift at all. It's not even doses or um, uh, dorema. It is grace gift, charisma. So the free grace gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the gift, take the word free out, the dorea, the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The word dorea there is the word that James uses, dorema, which relates to what? Salvation, the grace gift in this context. 
So Paul, and very specifically, uses this word in relation to salvation. Now, is that the case? Well, go back to James chapter 1. Take note what happens here. Which is mentioned first? Doses. The general act of giving. So, let me translate it this way. Every good giving, every giving that God does is good. Which means it's general. It's not specific. So everything that God gives on a general basis is what? Good. That includes trials. And I've specifically used the word good in terms of that. I've never used the word perfect in terms of trials. There's a reason for that. Take notice, the second word used is dorema. And every perfect gift is from above. Both come down from above, but both are individuals. Separate. How do I know that? Look at the next context. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that relate to? Salvation. So the Rema relates to salvation. Doshas relates to the act of giving. So what James has just done, he says, every general act of giving is good. And every gift of salvation is what? Perfect. Every time God gives a gift of salvation, it means that it is done for all deal. In fact, the word perfect means complete. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. It's sufficient in what he gives. It's complete in what he gives. Does that make sense? So when James says that every good giving and every perfect gift comes from above, he says, listen, here's what I'm telling you, that it doesn't matter what happens in your life, when you've become a believer, everything that God has given to you was good. And you know this by reality, because I'm going to prove it to you in verse 18, that every fact, wherever he's given salvation, it was a perfect gift. It can never be added to or lost. Why? It's a gift. He gives it. So that is what James, in my view, has in view. God is a good and giving Father. Why does he raise this? Well, I've mentioned because of the accusation of verse 13. Here's what I want you to remember. doesn't matter what he gives. Even though he may include hardship, it is good. But here's the good news. When he gives salvation, it is done. It is perfect. For those of you struggling with salvation, am I truly saved? If God has saved you, if he's granted you the gift of salvation, based on verse 18, if God is the one who births you, and I'm going to explain that next time we get to that uh, verse. If God is the one who does that, it is done. You are saved eternally forever because it's a completed, perfect gift. Stop Doubting your salvation. So, James uses these hook words to draw us in. At least the Jews in, because they know exactly what he means. Now, there's going to be some of you smartians that's going to say, well, it says good gift and perfect gift. Surely it can be the same thing. Sure. I'm sure you'll go to heaven if you believe that. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I think that James implies two things because of the way that he structures it. If he put perfect gift ahead of good gift, I would have said, mm, 
there's probably an argument to be made here. Nevertheless, God is good. Uh, we have 10 minutes left according to my watch. Um, but let me, let me close with this. Instead of doing a half a section, let me close with this. A.W. Pink says this. The goodness of God in the life of the, uh, is the life of the believer's trust. It is the, this excellency in God which most appeals to our hearts. Because his goodness endures forever, we ought never to be discouraged. Yahweh is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Now he goes on to quote Spurgeon from one good writer to the next. Quote, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more hardly to give thanks unto the Lord because he is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more evidently bless him that is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is the absolutely certain, this, sorry, this is absolutely certain that Yahweh is good. His dispensations may vary, but his nature is always the same, end quote. What James has just demonstrated is that God is always the same in the way that he gives. He's always going to give us good gifts. Now, sometimes that goodness includes the sufferings you are facing, which may be health, which may be your spouses, which may be your jobs, which may be this period in history. It is good. We need to stop thinking that we want to escape the goodness of God in the gift of trials. Why? Because of the perfect gift that he has given. If the good gifts include suffering, here's what you need to hold on to. I will never go lost, doesn't matter what happens to my life. Why? Because the gift of salvation is perfect. That's what James is pointing out. You are secure because you have a father that cares for you. He loves you enough, cares for you enough to give you hardship and an eternal salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such tremendous truth. We cannot fully fathom the weight of the reality of your unchangeable nature, Lord. But we are thankful that this is the foundation of our hope that you have given to us eternal salvation in your eternal Son. We can never go lost if you have saved us. So thank you, Lord, not only for our salvation, but every good gift that you give, every act of giving that you've demonstrated, whether it includes hardship and trials, persecution, sickness, death, suffering, loss of jobs, inclusion of jobs, hardship at home, husbands, wives, children who are not saved and act as if they own the world. Lord, we thank you for every hardship that you give to us. Why? Because it is good. You are a good God who only gives good gifts to us. Therefore, Lord, change our minds and our hearts in the way that we think about you and life. Forgive us for rebelling. 
and sinning against you. Now magnify yourself through this word and change our lives for your glory. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.